Hi, it's John here. We've just been through the most extraordinary, in some ways the most unbelievable economic disruption of our lifetime. But you know, there's one sector that has thrived through the pandemic. And of course, that's technology. The tech sector is booming. In Canada, the boom actually started several years ago. It was driven, of course, by lower interest rates, new tax laws, a lot more venture capital, and the rapid shift toward digitization. But it was also fueled by a new generation of tech entrepreneurs who not only wanted to take risks, but were committed to building global companies in Canada. In 2021, a lot of those startups started to take off. Just look at the first six months of this year. Canadian tech companies raised nearly as much venture capital as they did in all of 2019. And that was a pretty good year. 22 companies have had financing rounds of $100 million or more, and we're not even through summer. And 10 of them have achieved unicorn status. You're probably familiar with the term unicorn. It refers to companies that are valued at at least a billion US dollars. A few years ago, you could count Canadian unicorns on one hand. Today, it's in the double digits. Canada is now the third most productive tech ecosystem in the world after Silicon Valley and China. That's in terms of invested capital. But as we look beyond the pandemic, what will it take to sustain this boom? What will it take to keep this talent here in Canada with their companies? And how can Canada continue to nurture homegrown talent and build a new generation of global tech champions? This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. On today's program, we're taking a closer look at Canada's tech boom, as seen through one of this year's biggest success stories. Toronto-based ClearCo, formerly ClearBank, was founded in 2015 as a way for startups to raise money through revenue-sharing agreements. Since then, ClearCo has been able to lend more than $2.5 billion to more than 5,500 companies. This past June, ClearCo raised $215 million in a round led by Japan's SoftBank. This followed a round in April that quintupled ClearCo's valuation to $2 billion, delivering the six-year-old startup into Canada's exclusive Unicorn Club. My guest today is the co-founder of ClearCo and one of Canada's best-known tech entrepreneurs, Michelle Romano. Over the past 15 years, Michelle has launched a coffee shop, a fishery, a mobile couponing app, and now with ClearCo, a pretty revolutionary moneylender. She's also one of the stars of CBC's Dragon's Den. Michelle, welcome to Disruptors. It's great to be here. So it's hard to believe we've been in this crisis for roughly 18 months. Sometimes it feels like 18 years. It does. <laughs> it definitely does. I've been closer to 18 years than 18 months on this one, for sure. Michelle, what have you learned? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, I have reconfirmed myself that I am an extrovert, and this was uh, a totally new level of resilience for me. Um I never thought in a million years that ClearCo would be a remote company. We had a rule about everyone was in the office. Everyone had to move to Toronto and we just continued on. I wouldn't say without a beat. There was lots of things that happened uh, during that period that we had to learn from. But I think that is going to be 
so liberating. And it was actually really interesting. So there was a lot of work, a lot of, uh, actually a lot of the early work RBC produced on this saying that the pandemic was a huge setback for women because effectively they had become, you know, both workers in their home and, you know, kindergarten teachers and, and everything. Um, and I think, I am very hopeful that that's actually quite temporary because what we did in this pandemic is we proved that working from home was not, I am at home doing my laundry, checking an email once an hour. I am actually working from home. And when you think about the long-term effects that that is going to have on women and families, I think that is going to be absolutely game-changing. Um, and so that was a huge part of uh, of learning through the pandemic. And then the last thing that was probably, you know, very relevant is, I mean, we raised, you know, more than $300 million um, from a Zoom screen. And this was an industry that everyone said you had to meet in person, you had to get to know other people. And I think that there was a contraction in deals at probably the very beginning. And then people just said, well, look, the world has to go on. And... Um, and so we've kind of found ourselves in in a new paradigm. Can, can we jump, Michelle, to the state of entrepreneurship? Because uh, yeah. this, this this crisis has been devastating for a lot of entrepreneurs, been liberating, uh, depending on the sector for 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 entrepreneurs. You, you are a serial entrepreneur. How do you think entrepreneurship has changed because of this crisis? I think everyone now has to think digital first. And I think we probably would have been in another 20, 25 years of, you know, in-person first, no matter what that means, whether that was retail or restaurant or, or whatever. And I think you're right. There was lots of businesses that saw devastation. There was an equal number. I remember this season and last season, actually, on Dragon's Den, just seeing these extraordinary businesses. I remember there was one that's like a... You know, it's an app that shows you where you can bring your dog. <laughs> you know, the whole revenue model was based on in-person events and like all of these businesses pivoted. And they, you know, if you were a restaurant, you were figuring out how to do corporate events where you, you had sushi come in. And that innovation is actually extremely important um, that we have that because entrepreneurs are always thrown these curveballs along the way. And I think, you know, we got, we got to see this, we were like, we were on the, the front of the airplane on this. We saw this incredible rise in e-commerce and digital commerce. We saw double the amount of new businesses created in, this is a U.S. stat, in the U.S. last year than any other year in the last 10 years. And I think that's incredibly important because we can look at a small, narrow section of, of some brick and mortar businesses that were incredibly hurt. And effectively, what we did is we just put an enormous amount of government debt. And I think that's going to have a lot of long-term effects on those businesses. But there was a lot of people that basically said, screw it. This is my life. If we live with the virus, I am either not doing my job and I'm actually going to build my dreams. And I think that that is going to be such a win. And we're going to see this enormous growth of businesses come out of that. I mean, double the amount of new businesses were created. And so, you know, we look at this the same way that like I started my career in the 2008 recession. I was there at the beginning of this like group on an e-commerce phase where we had just started with kind of the early consumer tech. And obviously the, the Airbnbs and the Ubers just completely took off. But a lot of these were, you know, recession-based businesses. And although we are not in a recession at all, we went through this kind of crazy economic cycle that I think net-net is going to produce um, some extraordinary businesses to, to watch because we've actually seen the creation of all of them this year. 
these disruptive moments, and we call this disruptors for a reason, are real pivot points for society and economies, uh, whether it's a recession or not. And and we saw that in the in the financial crisis, as you said, that's when Facebook and so many other companies took off because social norms changed really, really quickly. When this crisis hit, did you, having lived through a previous crisis, know at the beginning that this was going to be a kind of reset in which opportunities pop out of left field? I now consider myself very blessed that, you know, I I finished engineering in 2007. I finished my MBA in 2008. I moved out to New Brunswick to build a fishery from scratch, which was producing sturgeon caviar. I was producing one of the most luxurious products in the world. The definition of things you do not need in a recession is caviar, right? And so built this business, was selling it. And I still remember what September you know, 8th of 2008 felt like when it was like, oh my gosh, most families were saying they had lost like, I don't know, a third to half of their net worth. I was like, this is going to be so painful. And I think there's nothing like, I mean, entrepreneurs live through crises every day. I mean, I literally wake up. I always say there's like two things. It's like slap me across the side of the head every week. I just don't know what they're going to be. Um, but even in this situation, it was pretty difficult to stay calm. I think I, what we did is we just kept hunkering down on saying, here's what we need to know. We, we divided the company into one of six initiatives that we were all working on. Um, we continued to put money into the market. This is when literally everyone else was providing capital, whether it was, you know, Square or everyone else pulled back. We said, no, we think these businesses are going to do okay. We were looking at data every single day to see how things were going. And some of these trends were so interesting. It was like, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, no children's toys. And the children's toys went through the roof because everyone's like, oh my God, I'm home with my kids. And there was all these like weird trends that were like, we're watching. We're like, beauty's going to take a nosedive because like no one's going out anymore. And then three weeks into the pandemic, everyone's watching themselves on, on Zoom and beauty is not taking a nosedive anymore. So we're the, the benefit of having all this data is that we were seeing it. And then I think the last part about managing through a crisis is just constant, transparent communication. I think for a company of our size, we did an all hands. I mean, we were 200 people at this time. We did an all hands every single day at five o'clock. And I'd say 90% of the all hands, I felt like I was saying, I don't know more than you. We're not going back to the office tomorrow. And, and here's what's happened. Um, but it was, uh, it is not easy to manage through crisis. That takes a certain humility, and entrepreneurs uh, get humbled every day, as, totally. you, as you know, but also have to be super confident because um, no one's going to have more confidence in your business than than you. So you got to be 100% confidence. How, when you're going through this kind of turmoil, do you manage that need to be confident, to be the leader, to know where you're taking the place with that kind of daily or hourly uh, humbling that a crisis yeah. inflicts on on all of us? you have a, a very close circle that you are incredibly honest with because you cannot, you cannot at the end of the day be fooling yourself. And you can be, I think optimism and living in reality are very different things that many people conflate all the time, right? They think that if I just ignore what's happening and the fact patterns, I am ruthless around getting to the bottom of the story and why things aren't working and why that's not happening. That does not mean I can't take what could look like a very negative spreadsheet and say, oh God, we can still win doing this. <laughs> um, and that is really, it is separating optimism and separating reality. 
um, because I think those are two different things. Andrew and I were incredibly honest with each other throughout this crisis. Um, you know, every day we were like, okay, is this happening? Where are our loss rates going? How do we protect this? How do we keep going? Are we taking too much risk? And, you know, it's a funny thing as you look back now. And one of the things that we did is we pulled out of international markets. And now we wish we would have gone so much further. I mean, we, we had launched the UK by October already. And so it's not like we had a, we had a long pause, but I think we had that moment um, where we could have gone, you know, even stronger, even faster into doing things. So even when you think you've done like an okay job of managing it, you still look back being like, oh, if I'd only known we were going to bounce back so quickly, I would have taken a couple more risks um, during this process. But what, what, uh, what gave you pause and, and what, what didn't you see? Oh my gosh, we just had no idea what was going to happen. Like it, you, we were, we were all reading the same things, which is like the crisis is worse than the UK. I was so worried the consumer spending was going to drop. I mean, we backed, we put $2.4 billion in 5,500 e-commerce companies. I am not a fool. If we see all of consumer spending drop, it's going to be pretty difficult for us. <laughs> so there was this whole, like th- there was real fear in what could potentially happen there. Um, and then you just, you, you don't know what you don't know. And, uh, we've, we've made it through. Maybe we can pause and ask you to explain to our listeners what ClearCo, formerly ClearBank does. So I'll tell you the story. I had been a serial entrepreneur my whole life, built an e-commerce company myself. No one would fund me because they just, you know, didn't understand the business and didn't think e-commerce businesses could do that well. Um, sold an app to Groupon and then ended up getting cast on the, on Dragon's Den when I was 28 years old. And what's important is everyone's like, oh, that was so great. I mean, when you're me, you just feel like the, the runt of the litter. You are the poorest one on the show and you are the youngest one on the show. So you feel like you have no idea what you're doing. And so I took a totally different approach to looking at these businesses. And we see something like 250 pitches back to back in 17 days. So a lot of things start to distill. And this is my first time really being an investor. And everyone's kind of like, look, I want, I want hundred grand and I'm willing to give up 10% of my company at the early stage. And you ask them what they need the money for, and it's always the same two things. I need it for um, inventory, and I need it for customer acquisition, which is really Facebook and Google ads today. And so I remember thinking, like, why are founders using the most expensive capital in the world, which is always going to be equity, to do something that really has a fixed return? I mean, you buy inventory, you can only mark it up three or four times. You, You buy a Facebook ad, you're hoping for a three or four times return. So Andrew and I put our heads together, and I came back to the show the next day. This is, you know, in 20. 2015, 2016. And I was like, look, different deal type. I'm going to give you the hundred thousand dollars you're looking for. Instead of taking 10% of your company that I'll own forever, I just want 10% of your revenue just so you pay me back my capital plus 6%. So I was like, oh, this sounds like a loan. And I'm like, no, no, it's not a loan. There's no personal guarantee. There's no fixed payment timelines, no company interest. But most importantly, this isn't debt. If you don't pay me back, I'm not going to bankrupt your business. Totally different risk profile. And so the founder that day was like, yeah, I'll do that. And that's effectively the category we created is revenue share deals for founders. The only two options that existed before we did were really bank debt, which always has personal guarantees associated with it and is, is really in small businesses a form of personal loan. And then on the other end, there was venture capital. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of those. But venture capital is designed for people who are in the venture capital ecosystem. And so it is, and there's been so much published on this, it is extremely unfair the way that it is distributed. Because if you went to Harvard and Stanford, and if you know all the VCs, it's not hard for you to raise venture dollars. But to think about how large our market is, I mean, there was just just in e-commerce, again, we fund SaaS companies and mobile apps, just in e-commerce, there was 25 million e-commerce businesses last year. 
5,000 of them got VC funding. So not only does our product work well, if you're raising venture capital, because you don't have to take as much dilution, you can use our capital for your ads and inventory. But we have a big, a big, big, big market out there. And so, you know, it's hard to believe that off that little deal off the show, we've been able to, to fund, you know, two and a half billion dollars into 5,500 different founders. I mean, our mission is to fund a million founders. We think that uh, that's big and bold and requires us to operate in most countries around the world, but we think we can do it. And the category was created uh, out of Canada, which I think is just the coolest thing. I mean, I think Andrew and I probably thought we could start a company. I don't ever think we thought we could start a category. And so uh, that gives us a lot of of pride. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. But coming up, more of our conversation with Michelle Romano on the challenges of scaling up and the opportunities ahead for Canada's thriving tech sector. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. You may have heard our recent two-part series called The Creativity Economy. We've also recently launched a new thought leadership report on the IT skill for the 2020s. It's called The Coming Creativity Boom. In it, Canada's most creative thinkers share their insights on the country's creative potential. Discover how different creative types deliver value and how we can translate that into our country's creative future. You can find it at rbc.com slash creativity. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Michelle Romano, one of the dragons on Dragon's Den and co-founder of ClearCo. What, what changes you, Michelle, as, uh, as, you, as the company grows? Um, you're, you're now, what, 250 employees? No, we're now 400. Okay, sorry, I blinked. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 400. I'll blink again. And you, Five zero uh, yeah. people started on Monday this week. I, I would just, like, it's, it's blown away the, the growth that I am witnessing. And, and you now have employees, I'm guessing, who you don't know. And you may yeah. never know. How do you have to change as an entrepreneur? Because, uh, you know, until now, a lot of your businesses have been things you could wrap your arms around. Yeah. So this is the hardest part of being a founder is that what gets you to stage one and stage two does not get you to stage two and stage three. And it would be easy if the things that got you to stage one and stage two, everyone was laughing at you along the way. You get doubted and you get said no to so many times in this business. And I always think it's important to share, right? So we had this idea that, you know, we could give e-commerce founders money. We would just use the data sources from their business. We would have no personal guarantee as a backup plan. And I went around Wall Street in my high heels pitching all of these credit guys. And 200 people said no to us. I think the rudest one said, you guys don't even understand credit. (laughs) Uh, like this will never work. You're going to lose your shirts. And we're like, no, we're pretty sure that these are the data sources that will be more indicative. Pretty sure that because we have access to this information every day, it, it will, um, it will be a stronger source of data and signal. And, um, so, so many people say no to you. So many people think this is like a cute business. So many thought people thought we would deploy 20 or 30 or $40 million and it would be like this cute little thing. And we're like, no, 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 we're going to go we're going to go build an asset class. We're going to go build an asset class that's bigger than venture capital because I have, a, I have a TAM that's much larger than the TAM of companies that could possibly 10x a year. And so you 
you callous yourself in a really good way where you're like, I am used to people saying no to me. I'm used to people saying I'm wrong. And I had to hear so much of that to get here. But what that does is it gets really scary because now I have to be a very different leader than I was at the early stage. And so my leadership style is always get my hands dirty, always get into the spreadsheet myself, call the customer myself. If something doesn't make sense, then my team's telling me, um, you know, it was like, there is no task too low or too high for me. I will do it. Um, and that's an important, I think, part of leadership is to just lead from the front. But that is a completely unscalable form of leadership when you are trying to enter 10 countries in a year. <laughs> so um, you have to work with, you know, coaches and people that can take you to that next level. And I have had to stop doing in, in many ways, things that actually hurt me because they were some of the things that, that, um, that made me so successful. And I, and I get that this is going to be the hardest part of, of my journey too, is changing the way that I lead, right? I used to have, you know, people could call me at midnight and I take their phone calls and I can't have a one-on-one relationship with everyone anymore. And in many ways that like completely breaks my heart, but I have to figure out now how to communicate on all hands. I have to figure out how to, how to do different things. I think I would give you like one last example. And I actually think this is a good example because it's a little bit controversial. So we'll get a couple of people thinking about it, but I, I had a really interesting experience watching Uber scale. And one of the things that most people don't know about the Uber story is they know the part of the story where, you know, Travis gets a bit aggressive and then he's kicked out. But they miss the part of the story where to build Uber meant fighting every single taxi union basically in the world. And most people are like, oh, yeah, it was a fight. And it was a fight with the government. In many cases, it was a fight with the mob. And I knew actually many friends that had started competitors to Uber that stopped because they had literally people show up at their door saying they would kill their family. This was not, this was, this was, this is the definition of what you call like a a dirty business, right? And the balls that it took (laughs) to continue operating when you basically had a person in every city that didn't want your business to fail, that that actually wanted you killed was very different. And I don't think anyone ever gave him the respect for having to, to build this in every city. And I think now all of us appreciate that this is an incredible public utility that we now have um, drivers on demand. But imagine just going through that experience, just having the empathy of like what that must have felt like to do that in, you know, 200 cities, 400 cities around the world. And then you build a little bit of cockiness. You understand that you always feel like people are going to take you down. And then you lose the empathy for who he needed the empathy for, which is at the end of the days, his own employees, his own teams and the drivers that funded his business. And this, this is, this is, I just, it hit me so hard reading his story that the same thing that brought him to where he was, was the exact same trait that brought him down. And that is why it is so bloody difficult to do this job as you scale, because he would have never made it there without that trait. And then that trait has to change and, and, and get more nuanced and get different. And I think it's just an important part of the story because people, I don't think he gets credit for what that took at the early days. They just see how that became the, the fatal character flaw in the later days. And so I think there's, there's a lot to learn. And um, I try and be very humble. And that's going to be have to be a part of my journey as well. 
you've mentioned Andrew a couple of times. That's uh, Andrew D'Souza, your, your your business partner and life partner. And it's, it's always amazing to watch how how you manage that. And I'm, I'm curious how about your dynamics as the company grows and how you um, keep hold each other to account, uh, yeah. keep each other humble, but also balance that uh, th- those growth challenges. Is it easier as a couple or uh, easier as individuals? <laughs> um, I think there is there's a lot of emphasis placed on the fact that we're a couple. When you're when you have a co-founder, you just do everything together, and you spend so much time together, and you have to learn how to work very well. And one of the things that makes Andrew and I such a unique co-founding pair is we are actually very different business people. And Andrew is an incredible product visionary. Has extraordinary ideas and the ability to implement those things. Um, and I am a, I am a much maybe harder seasoned operator. (laughs) So we actually, what we've done today is we divide the company into what we call horizon one and horizon two. We think we have the luxury today of thinking about horizon two, which is how do we create long-term innovation, long-term retention of our customers and incredible products that the world couldn't even dream about. And what gives us the right to do that is my part of the business, which is horizon two, which is making our numbers this year, which is, um, you know, it's, it's the vast majority of the org and making sure we're operating and we're launching these 10 countries and everything happens. And we have changed roles over the years. We have found different balances um, over the years. And then we've had to figure out how to balance our own lives as well, which is, you know, most couples plan date night because they want to see each other and they want to have uninterrupted time. By definition, I see Andrew every single day. So we have to plan non-date nights where we don't see each other. And you just figure out these rhythms that are incredibly important, you know, to you as a couple and to you, to you bringing off. And I mean, look, I think it was it was great that, that we got to build something together. I still think he's one of the best founders I've, I've ever known in my life. And so it, it just comes from an area of respect. Last thing I would say about working with your partner is, um, and I think COVID actually taught so many couples this, is most couples had no idea what they did when they went to work every day. <laughs> and so you love someone, but when you get to see someone win at work and be really good at doing something in their career, there's kind of like a whole new level of love that gets unlocked with that, which I think is always really cool. That's a beautiful thought. <laughs> so you're Horizon 1 and he's Horizon 2, is it that simple? That's correct, yeah. <laughs> That's great. It could be a new, uh, a, new, a new playbook. Because every company has the same concept. It's short-term and long-term. And we have to do both and we have to do both really well. If we want to be a 100-year-old company, it's got to be a Horizon, horizon 2. And man, if we don't meet this year and what we need to do well today, we, we don't get the right to have a horizon to. Well, all of this is unfolding uh, and unfolding very well uh, for ClearCo. We are in the midst of the most extraordinary, I don't say tech boom, but in some ways it's one of the most extraordinary business booms uh, just in the last 12 months in terms of uh, all sorts of asset valuations, but particularly in the VC space. What do you make of what's happened in such a short period? (laughs) Um, I actually think you're probably better to tell me. I don't think we have ever seen this level of whatever you want to call it, quantitative easing, printing money that we have ever witnessed the world see. And I think we saw a little bit of what that looked like in 2008 and how that, that was still very slow. We were seeing asset prices increase very slow. I, I have no idea what that's going to mean. Um, 
And uh, I think there are far smarter people to talk to me um, about that. But what I can say is that tech is not is not having a different bubble compared to other asset classes. The same way that real estate is up, the same way that equity is up, tech is up really on that same cadence. You know, at this stage, I can tell you, we're not being valued today on potential in the future in bubble. There's an extraordinary amount of, of diligence at this stage, especially when you get a partner like SoftBank that, that wants to understand, you know, how big this business and how big the TAM is and how well you guys are performing. And so I don't, I, I don't think I would, I would say that this is a bubble. I would say that we should be so proud of like, you know, this new series of what, what should be close to a you know, I don't know, a handful of Canadian unicorns. And it's exciting to celebrate now, but it's important to remember that all these seeds were planted five, six, seven years ago as people were coming out, as there was more venture capital in the ecosystem, as there was more support. And my, my number one thing is I would just beg Canadians that we cannot have tall poppy syndrome here. We have to route We have to cheer for these companies to win because the reality of tech companies is they are largely winner-take-all markets. The network effects you get on data are so powerful that you get to end up owning um, the market. And so when we talk about the fangs, I always think that there should have been a B in there and it should have been BlackBerry. And we have to think about how to not create great companies for Canada, but how to create great companies for the world, because they will provide enormous dividends to Canada while doing that. And I think we have a tendency to to just not celebrate successes the same way, or they we we want to take people down when they're getting successful. And that's not how we're going to win as a country. We don't win if we're all like, oh, let's create a bunch of little Canadian oligopolies. Like That's not a win. We're 2% of the global economy. And we need companies that are intrinsically global. And then, my God, we get to share all of the Canadian values we like with the rest of the world by building a company here. What, what do we need to do? to create more of those global, global winners and global champions? Um, capital was a big part of the early equation. We've, we've largely solved a lot of that. Risk-taking is the other one. I, I would be lying to you if there wasn't a lot of days I lied in bed being like, oh my God, please someone buy this company so I can, <laughs> I can, I can like take a vacation <laughs> that's longer than 48 hours. And I am so happy today we kept we kept going, but we also had investors that were really supportive and we had, you know, customers that were very supportive for us to keep going. And we need that that global ambition, right? If we continue to chop down people for God, anything from like, you know, traveling to operating in another country, which is not exactly like ours to, 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 we do this, we get very myopic as Canadians sometimes. And it's, it's just not how we're going to win. We're going to win because we think about, we want to create something that's, that's dominant and we want to create a category and it's, it's based in Canada, but it's, it's for the whole world. And, and in many ways, you're now in a new echelon. Uh, you mentioned SoftBank, uh, you know, one, one of the world's biggest investors. Uh, you've got Maya Son uh, now <laughs> uh, involved in your company. How, how does that change things? It's, uh, I, well, first of all, I couldn't believe it. It wasn't until we were doing the press where we were like, are we are the first Canadian company SoftBank's invested in. And then we went back to SoftBank and they're like, yeah, you guys are. And um, like, we literally didn't realize that until like a, until a week ago. Um, look, it's, a, it's, it's an extraordinary vote of confidence. It's a reason to have a glass of champagne and to take a moment to pause and be like, that's really cool. 
but it means that we are just at the beginning of our journey. I mean, Andrew and I have literally sneakers that say day one on them. And day one means we haven't earned anything yet. There's no laurels. Anyone can can come and build something. And we need to have this attitude every single day we have to keep building. And so I, I think this is like a great vote of confidence for Canada that, that companies like this can be built there. But it, I think it's so bizarre to celebrate fundraising in a way because at the end of the day, great, it's external validation and someone believes in your company, but you're also celebrating that you just sold a little piece of your company. It's actually a bizarre thing. It's like, you know, today, Michelle and Andrew gave up another X percent of their business. Um, and, um, and at the end of the day, I think founders should own their business because they do all the work and investors are, are can be hugely helpful. But thinking about the balance of, of dilution, which is effectively what our, our company was built on, um, is incredibly important. As you become more and more of a global company, how how do you stay Canadian and how do you avoid being swallowed up by other global players? You know, I think this is where founders have to really think long and hard about how they're financed and who they partner with, because there's certainly situations where you can have things that look like hostile takeovers or, or things at like the public level where, where companies are given less of a choice to choose. But if you create the discipline around a good business model where you have, you have capital and you have options, that gives you the right to continue to remain independent, to continue to show your values and to continue um, to build that way. And so I think we're not explicit when we talk, we, we celebrate fundraisings, but we don't talk about the more complicated part of fundraising, which is, you know, do founders still control their board? Do they still control their destiny? You know, are they in a position where, and, and this is also founders jobs as well. I mean, if you are burning more money and if you put yourself on the treadmill where if, if you don't raise every 12 months, you don't have a company, you're allowing yourself to be controlled by another partner. And so having that discipline is exceptionally important. And that's what allows you to, to really be the sailor of your own ship at the end of the day. If we can have you back on the podcast in a year's time, um, what do you hope we'll be able to talk to about? Oh, I think we'll be able to talk about um, all the mistakes we made in a global expansion <laughs> and what worked and what didn't work and the advice I can give to other Canadians on trying to figure out how to do that. I think it's going to be a really, really interesting time. The other thing that, um, this, was, this is a funny one, John, I'll, I'll tell you because I always like talking about when I'm wrong so you can always, you know, people with too much time can find interviews saying the, the reverse. So I remember when I was first starting off as an entrepreneur. Everyone talks about, oh, well, there's just not enough talent in Canada. And like, you, you're going to have to go to other places to get talent. And that's impossible. Like, there's 33 million people in a country. Like, there's no way we're out of talent. Like, that's just, that just seemed like such a bizarre concept. And today, I understand what people say when they mean we are out of talent. Because when you have a company that's going through this growth stage, you need enough people on your executive team that have actually seen this before. And in the early stage, you can almost always bet exclusively on young folks that will work their ass off, that will just like figure it out. But the landmines are too big and the time is too fast. So, you know, I didn't know things like how to hire an employee in 10 different countries because they're all different. And some of those people I couldn't fire. And some of those people, like you can use these employment firms, like, like one tiny thing. That, that when people have seen this growth curve or this growth spectrum they've gone through. And so that's kind of in your CFO office, in your chief people officer, um, in a bunch of different things where you want someone that says, 
well, yeah, at Twilio, we had to do this. And when Salesforce was going through this, it had to happen. And we just haven't built enough of these. I think half of our, our exec team is in the United States now. I mean, our head of product is in is in Seattle because she came from Amazon. Our, our CFO is in San Francisco because he ran technology investment in JP Morgan. And we've all worked as a remote team, so it totally worked. But it's one of the things that I was wrong about is that we are going to continue to need to figure out how to get great talent into Canadian companies because at this speed and this scale... If you're asking founders that haven't done this before to do it as trial by fire, the mistakes are just too big at this level. And uh, and so I finally got it. And I was very, very wrong about this point before. What an extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Our guest today has been Michelle Romano from ClearCo. Michelle, thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It was wonderful to be here and a great conversation. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is Disruptors, an RBC podcast Stay tuned in the weeks ahead as we bring you some of our favorite episodes from the past year and update some of the amazing stories of Canadian resilience. Talk to you soon. Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com slash disruptors.